invite you to turn your Bibles while I <clears throat> get ready here to the book of Proverbs in the fifth chapter. Proverbs chapter 5. Thank you to those who have led and prepared us in worship. And, uh, we thank you for those who have joined us online as well as those here this morning. Proverbs chapter 5. In our church, we have long held the conviction that it is important for us who officiate and conduct marriage counseling or premarital counseling that it is a worthwhile and a valuable uh, ministry to couples getting married. It has uh, served us well over the years. It's entrenched in the policies of the church that those who marry undergo uh, premarital counseling. In the chapter that we're looking at today, the fifth chapter of Proverbs, we have here a father preparing his son for marriage. I wondered when I reflected on this, I wonder when it happened that suddenly the task of preparing children for marriage was relegated to the church. Indeed, it's a parental responsibility. Indeed, it's a responsibility that just doesn't occur in the months before the wedding. It's a responsibility that starts when your child is born. But here we have this tremendous example of a father preparing his son for marriage. If you were to put a title on the, the message, it might be called marital faithfulness. Marital faithfulness. There's a frankness in this proverb. There's an openness it really, it really does betray what a father would say to a son. But as pastors and preachers preach from this text, we know the wisdom of tailoring the content to the audience. As I reflected on that, I imagined that I would preach Proverbs 5 a lot different at a men's retreat. The, that doesn't matter. The point is that the main point always be retained, that the main message never gets lost, even though you might tailor it and shape it to an audience. You'll find that I do that today. There are some explicit things that I won't speak speak about, assuming that, again, it's primarily a, parent, a parent's job to do that. And at the same time, I've been pleading with God that I would not stray from what the main point of Proverbs 5 is, because we all need to hear that. In fact, I have three headings 
three main headings you should hear from me today from this chapter. The first heading is this, son, don't touch. The second heading, by the way, that's the first 14 verses, son, don't touch. The second heading from verses 15 to 20 is son, touch. Son, touch. And the third heading in verses 21 to 23 is son, be warned. Or son, beware. Now let me prepare you for some applications. Let me prepare you for some applications. First of all, this proverb is the account of a father speaking to a son. That's the reality of the historical context. No preacher in his worth his salt is going to stray from that. It's a father speaking to a son. But you would err this morning if you think daughters don't need the same message. Do you hear me? You would err if your daughters don't need the same message. Let's be clear this morning. Adultery is not a male-only sin. We will keep to the historical context, but beware that you don't fall into the error that adultery is a male sin. That's the first point I want to prepare you for. The second is, there may be someone here this morning listening to me, listening to the Word of God, listening online, and you truly can say, I have never committed the act of adultery. Please don't be smug. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a very serious statement of our Lord. A lustful look by anyone in the wrong direction is tantamount to the sin of adultery. So don't be smug this morning. Externally, you and I may have not committed adultery, but only the Lord who knows all things knows our hearts. And thirdly, If you, by some reason, are listening this morning in this service online and you're unmarried, you've never been married, you're divorced, you're a widow, a widower, you must surely know this morning that moral purity is as much becoming of you than the married people. Purity of heart is an issue that 
moves across all relationships, married or unmarried. The point of Proverbs 5 is that marital unfaithfulness is destructive. And marital faithfulness is delightful. Hear that again. Marital unfaithfulness will lead to destruction. Marital faithfulness leads to delight. Just one other thought before I start. You might find this introduction longer than the whole message. I have found it necessary to be this way. When you hear this message today, there's many of us here today listening online or will hear this message, and it will drive you to regret and remorse and feelings of great guilt. You don't have to know anything about me. I don't have to know anything about you. The statistics bear witness alone, and they're shocking that there are many people listening this morning who have committed sexual impropriety in or out of marriage. And the guilt ought to be heavy. But I'm also here to remind you, even as the Apostle Paul said about Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So as you hear the Father's instruction about marital faithfulness and unfaithfulness, keep your eye on the cross. Focus your attention on the cross. No matter who you are or what you've done, for there is a one who became flesh, lived a perfect life, and died for you, that you might have freedom from that sin and freedom from that guilt. With that in mind, let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the truth in your word. Open our hearts to respond in the diligent obedience. May our hearts give you glory and praise and thankfulness that you have created a world for us and a structure in this world that from the beginning was intended for our ultimate joy and happiness. It is not you that has erred, Heavenly Father. It is not you who has made a mistake. The most triune God. 
it is us. So grant us the humility and the courage to hear what you have to say, even on this topic of marital faithfulness. Cut through our own defensiveness. Cut through our pride. Cut through our unwillingness to hear truth and bear much fruit in this, I pray today, Lord Jesus, for your sake and for the good of your church. Amen. The best way to grow a congregation is through expository preaching. There are different styles and motives and approaches to proclaiming God's Word. But if a church wants to grow in maturity, they must know the Word of God, know what is written in the Word of God, know the message of the Word of God, and that happens through expository preaching. In other words, we don't convey an idea that we like to talk about and find a scripture to support it. We study the Word of God, and the message of the Word of God becomes the message of the sermon. God also gave us a book. I don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence. This is a book, and it's a book that contains books. And anyone thinking logically and sensibly would say that you read a book from beginning and to the end. That's just logic. We know that. There's a sequence. In Latin, this is called, in a Latin phrase, lectio continua. It means you read and study in a logical sequence from beginning to end. The reason I mention this is that this is my conviction. It's always been my conviction here. Expository preaching, lectio continua, from beginning to end, a book at a time. Why do I mention that? I don't mention that to score points with anyone. I mention that because a pastor waking up on Monday morning in his right mind would not choose to speak on this topic. I spoke to two pastor friends of mine from different parts of Western Canada this week, during the week, and they asked me about this, and they said, you've got to be kidding. Jim, that's your, this is your last sermon as the senior pastor of Elk Point Baptist Church, and you're going to preach on marital adultery. Lectio continuum. Chapter 5 follows chapter 4. It's very important that the man who inhabits this pulpit understand that and believe that. Because otherwise, in the flesh, there are topics we would rather not talk about. We wouldn't pick this in a million years. 
And there are many pastors and preachers who pick topics out of the air who would never cover this with their congregation in public. But God has created a book that has design and structure. The very imprint of the Trinitarian God is upon this book in wholeness and complexity. And therefore, I am convinced by my own conviction that it's important for us to look at this topic this morning. I didn't choose it because of any incident, any person. I didn't choose it because I wanted to. I choose it because I'm under obligation by the Holy Spirit to do it. Ray Ortland says, the Bible is not shy about sex, and its message is clear. Sexual folly destroys. Sexual wisdom satisfies. And Christ is better than the best sex. That's a good statement. Look at Proverbs 5. We'll read verses 1 to 14. And my heading is, Son, don't touch. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far away from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Do, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. <clears throat> I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verses 1 and 2, the father reminds his son about hearing and heeding his instruction. And then the dad uses two words to describe the temptation to adultery. Sweetness and bitterness. Note that in verse 3 and 4. These two key metaphors, sweetness and bitterness. You have to know this morning, beloved, that adultery can appear as sweet as honey. It can appear delicious. It can appear, appear inviting. But in the end, it is bitterness that leads to death. Here's what I want you to know. 
Adultery is honey with poison in it. Grab that picture. Adultery is honey with poison in it. Last week, as Deborah and I were driving, we happened to listen to Alistair Begg in his morning radio broadcast on CJCA, and he ironically was preaching on this topic. He talked about how sweet and inviting adultery can appear. He talked about the instance of where a man and a woman, both married, are working together, and they just start talking and and being friendly and opening up. And, And that conversation becomes a conversation where one of them starts to tell the other one some of the things they're going through in their life and their struggles. And that person finds an empathic ear, empathetic ear to the, with the other person. And the other person seems to understand, and they seem to get it. And the relationship grows and grows. And then there's the invitation for coffee. And both of them are amazed at how each other seems to understand them so much better than their spouse. And the discussion becomes even more emotional and more intimate. And in the end, it leads to adultery. Sweetness. Honey. But it's poison. The dad's counsel is verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. That's the counsel. That's the instruction to married men and women. Don't go near. Don't stray. Some of you will remember a few years ago in the U.S. election, the previous election, that the the man that was to be vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, let it slip at some point before a journalist that he believed in the Billy Graham rule. And he took a lot of derision and mockery for that. Do you know what the Billy Graham rule is? It's simply this. I will not spend time alone with a woman or a man, depending on the situation, where my own spouse is not there. One of the great things about the Billy Graham Association is the integrity of that association over years and years and years. And one of the reasons is that the Graham team would not go on a lunch, a coffee, a ministry with a, a one person going with a, another person of the opposite gender unless others were accompanied and, or at least the wife and, or spouse. Do not touch. Don't go near. As I visit with people in our culture, I'm astounded by the men and women that have business lunches together alone where their own spouse or other team members are not there. I'm astounded. I'm astounded by the men and women that 
are by our culture and economics forced to work together with people of the opposite gender. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing. In our church, we have for years maintained that pastors and and people doing ministry would not, a male would not ever involve themselves in a counseling relationship or something with a female unless there's others present. Why? Because it is a dangerous thing to do. You will be mocked. If you work in an industry and, and, and a male colleague, invite, colleague invites you out to talk about the next business item and say, well, let's go have lunch together, you will be mocked if you say no. You'll be mocked if you say, well, I need to bring a friend. But that's the advice of this father. Don't even play with this. Don't even go near this. Stay away from this. One of the men that shaped my formative years uh, was a man by the name of Dr. John Maxwell. At a pastor's conference in a very open and transparent conversation with pastors, he shared with us his rule of life that he would, and he traveled all over the world. He's an international speaker. He always took another male member of his team with him. When that male men, member entered a hotel room, they would sweep the room, make sure there's no pornography left behind. His male member would go to the front desk and say, please disconnect the television in room such and such. Why? Don't touch. Don't touch. Dr. Maxwell said that every single night, no matter how tired or how busy they were or what the time zone was, he would spend hours on the phone with his wife before falling asleep, talking about the children, talking about the day, and praying together. Why did he maintain that close contact with his wife? Answer, don't touch. Unfortunately, this problem even creeps into our families and our young people. We think it's nothing for a young male or a young female to be with someone of the opposite gender all alone down in the rumpus room. Like, let your imaginations go, parents. Think about it. Don't even go near it. It is poison, and it destroys it's very good advice. Don't be alone with a person of the opposite sex if your spouse is not present. Hear the words of this father. Keep far from her. The dad gives some good reasons why that should be. In verses 9 and 10, he says, don't give what is your best to somebody else. Think of this. Just 
please just think of this. Adultery is stealing what belongs to your spouse and giving it to somebody else. That's what this dad is saying. God has given you all these riches and resources, and you will steal from the person you're married to and give it to a stranger. I have never in all my reading found a more graphic picture of adultery than the inspired Word of God gives right here. You are stealing from your spouse and sharing it with others. Verse 11 gives another reason why the dad says, keep far from her. It brings shame upon the corporate body. The NIV translates that verse this way, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Do you know, beloved, that adultery affects the church of the living God? Paul said that over and over again in 1 Corinthians, and Solomon says it here. Sexual sin and sexual adultery hurts the church, the assembly. And then lastly, sexual sin brings shame and regret and despair. If, if you were here listening to me contemplating adultery, contemplating an affair, this daddy is offering a three-point reason why you shouldn't. One, you're stealing from your spouse. Two, you're bringing shame on the entire body of Christ. And three, it's going to send you to despair. You will end up in death. The father here seems to admit that he didn't listen to his daddy. If indeed it was Solomon, <laughs> he did not listen to his daddy. And notice what he says. He says, I didn't listen, and I've been brought to utter ruin. And when we started this series, we, we looked at Solomon's prayer to God and said, God, I don't want riches, I don't want power, I just want wisdom. And God said, what a, what a fantastic prayer request, asking for wisdom. Solomon had it all going for him. And he led the kingdom the nation of Israel to ruin because of his own sin, his own adultery, polygamy. He led himself and the kingdom to ruin. Son, don't touch. Don't touch. Verses 15 to 20, you'll remember my heading. It says, son, touch. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. 
and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Dad's saying, son, invest yourself in your wife. He uses metaphors like water and garden, pointing to the fact that marriage should be a place of delight. It should be a place of refreshment. The marriage act should be the thing that is, that is delighted in. It brings children into the family. It brings happiness into life. And so the father appeals to the son to be faithful to his wife, find his joy and delight in his wife. She is to be the one who gives him the sense of physical and relational happiness. The language here is, well, what I put in my notes is frankly frank. Very explicit. It's akin to the Song of Solomon in its language. But to those of us who are married, it stresses the importance of seeing intimacy with our spouse as a delight and a great joy. Marriage isn't just a contractual agreement or covenant, although it is, and I wouldn't minimize that in a minute. Marriage isn't just a means of producing children, although it is, and I wouldn't minimize it. This father is getting explicit and intimate enough to say, you should find all your physical joys and delight in the wife of your youth and not out there. So his first point to his son is, don't touch. His second point is, son, touch. His third point is, son, be warned. Verses 21 to 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. If I was to paraphrase these three verses, I'd say that the dad is saying, Son, God sees everything. And what you're thinking, and he knows what you're doing. And to rebel against God is going to bring you into bondage. That's what he's saying. Son, be warned. You can't think a thought. You can't perform an act without God seeing it. And to act on your sin will bring you into bondage. And your destruction will be because of your lack of discipline and your foolishness. Your lack of discipline and your foolishness. 
Notice where the dad places the responsibility. Notice where the dad places the responsibility. He didn't say to this son, I know it's the fault of that lady. Look at how she dressed in front of you. He didn't say that at all. He said, the reason why you fell because of, is because of your lack of discipline and your foolishness. He said nothing about the clothing of the other person. He didn't put the responsibility on the, son, the son's wife either. He didn't say, if my wife had been a better lover, if my wife had treated me better, I would never have chased that adulterous affair. He didn't say that. He said, son, the reason you did committed adultery and the reason you're falling into despair is because it's your lack of discipline and your foolishness. Why do I emphasize that? Why do I emphasize that? And please hear me clearly. The fault of adultery is your own. Counsel too many people, too many times, read too many books, and the knee-jerk reaction almost in every case from those who commit adultery is to put the blame somewhere else. The Bible says it's your fault. The Bible says it's your responsibility. I read these important words by Kathleen Nielsen, just a tremendous uh, ladies' teacher and writer. She said, God set up marriage in the beginning in order to tell us human beings something about himself. Just stop and let that sink in. Marriage is intended to show us something about God. Something that grows clearer and clearer through the whole biblical story. Something about the relationship he has with his people and will have forever through the salvation accomplished by Christ Jesus, his son, unquote. You see, adultery tarnishes the story that God is creating. Adultery tarnishes the story. Adultery, adultery makes the gospel look silly. Adultery makes the gospel look silly. It's ridiculous. To think in terms of Christ coming to earth, giving his life in full sacrifice to win a bride and to keep her in purity forever makes the gospel look ridiculous when we, in our physical marriages, commit adultery. And what is true about our physical adultery is also true about our spiritual adultery. 
just as it seems impossible for one partner in a marriage to steal what belongs to another and give it to somebody else, spiritually speaking, it should seem absolutely bizarre that a person, a Christian, who has been wedded to Christ would take what belongs to Christ and commit spiritual adultery by sharing, by, by, by developing love and affection in things that are not Christ. Does that, does that make sense? Did I explain that well enough? It's just marital adultery and spiritual adultery are, the, are, are similar things. Why would we fall in love and with affection to things other than Christ who loved us and gave his life for us? In fact, James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's speaking to Christians. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is true of physical adultery is also true of spiritual adultery. And it may be that God's Spirit is convicting us this morning. We may be above board in our marriages, but what about our heart's affection for the things of this world? When the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 entertained the idea that a Christian could be a person who just carries on sinning, he says in the strongest words, may it never be, or in the King James, God forbid. You see, God has intended for us to find all our satisfaction and all our delight and all our pleasure in Him. And to find satisfaction and joy outside of Christ is spiritual adultery. It also leads to bondage. It also leads to judgment. Today, you might be here this morning and you're sensing a tremendous guilt regarding marital adultery. Maybe your spouse doesn't even know. I've dealt with those scenarios. You could be sitting here or listening online. Your, your wife or your husband doesn't even know. Maybe they do know. But let us be sure this morning, God knows. God knows. God knows that you've been stealing from your spouse and sharing your affection and your delight somewhere else. Today's the opportunity to repent and make that right. Or maybe the message this morning for you is on the spiritual end where you've been spending all of God's resources, 
all of his gifts, all of his energy, and all of his strength, and you've been taking it and putting it somewhere else in this world. We need to pause and think, beloved, that even the breath we have is a gift from God. Our ability to think, our ability to love, our ability to do things. Why would we take what is God's and expend our energy on chasing the pleasures and delights of this world? The good news is there's always a way home. That's a, that's, that's a tremendous news. There's always a way home. You've never gone so far that you can't get back home. There's always a dad waiting with his arms open. There's always a ring waiting to go on your finger. There's always new clothes to put on your body. There's always a feast ready to be prepared when you come home. So whether God has been speaking to you about physical adultery or spiritual adultery, adultery, I want you to know that there's always a way to come home. You can come to your senses. You can stop eating with the pigs. And you can get up and go back to your father. And he won't turn you away. He will not turn you away. Let us pray. There are many, Father, here this morning, many listening or will listen, who will say in their heart of hearts, I have wandered far from home. Now I'm coming home. Your voice is direct and your voice is hard, Father, but your voice is full of mercy and full of love, and full of forgiveness. Every sin that any member of your church has committed has been paid for on the cross. And therefore, we can all come home. Lord God, I pray that as this message takes root in our hearts, we'll hear the admonition of this Father to those of us who are married and to those who are single, that when it comes to impurity and unlawful sexual activity, that will hear the word, don't touch. To those who are married, we pray that we will find 
our delight and joys in the wives and the husbands that you've given to us. And that we will live this day and this week and then months ahead with the dire warning that you see all things and your holiness will judge all iniquity. And may that warning keep us from danger. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and hear the benediction of God to you and I this morning? Now I'll point Baptist Church. May the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you great peace. Unto the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and power and dominion forever and ever. God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed.